This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by ECJ.Tax. All right, so for everyone, anyone joining, anyone and everyone joining us, good morning, good day, good evening, good whoever you are. Welcome to another live stream from HEJ.tax. We do this every week. Have a look at our website, HEJ.tax, to see what's coming up. And you've, it's all free. You feel free to jump on and jump off as, as you like. So we always have a, a little disclaimer at the beginning. What we talk about here today is not advice. If you're looking for advice, you need to engage a professional who will know your situation inside out. We're just having a general conversation about general tax principles. And you can consider it entertainment. So you can consider it educational, but it is not meant to be advice. So without further ado, I will welcome Aaron Boot, who is joining us all the way down from, uh, from Auckland in New Zealand. Aaron, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure, thanks, Darren. So my name is Aaron Boot. I'm the uh, Deputy Managing Director of William Buck in New Zealand. Um, I've been a chartered accountant for almost 30 years. I've worked and lived in Hong Kong, China, USA, Thailand, Philippines, and New Zealand. So I've worked around the world. Yeah. Um, I was the Regional Chair for Praxity for 11 years. Um, and I've been the New Zealand Advisor on Trust since I was working at Deloitte in 1992. So it's been a long time. So Absolutely. that's a very broad background of, of where I've been and what I've done. Fantastic. Thanks. Uh, and it's rare that we get someone with your pedigree and your experience. So uh, we're looking to extract as much as possible from, from you today. So today we're going to talk about New Zealand Trust. So I, I thought I'd start with a pretty basic question especially since you know the media creates all this uh mystique and a bit of hysteria about trust so what exactly is a trust okay. yeah i think there's, there's no need for the mystique um mm -hmm. at all i mean uh, a trust is simply an arrangement between three parties you have mm -hmm. the people that want to establish the trust you have the people put in charge of operating, running and governing the trust and you have the beneficiaries who are the people that are entitled to receive something from the trust. The, mm. the origin of trust goes back many, many centuries. It's an English uh, tradition. Mm -hmm. And if you go back many centuries, all the landed gentry were inscripted into the king's armies and asked to go and fight foreign wars where they'd be away from their land and their wives and their family and their peasants and the operation of their farms mm -hmm. for many many years and, and often some of them of course didn't come back i mean the english were at war with the french or the spanish almost incessantly from 1200 through to 1800 mm -hmm. um so that's where the, the concept of trust arises when the landed gentry left their country to go and fight the wars they put someone in charge of operating and looking after their assets and their family and their peasants and the land while they're away, effectively mm -hmm. entrusting those people to look after those assets when they were unable to do so themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's the concept of a trust. 
-hmm. And the same concept still applies today. It's just that we don't have standard gentry conscription into king's armies of to fight foreign wars with peasants. But the concept still applies today in terms of people that want to establish a trust, maybe for their families, maybe for a charity, or, 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 or for many other different reasons. And they want to put someone in charge of operating those assets, looking after those assets, governing uh, those assets on behalf of a set of people. Now, the mm -hmm. settler can be a trustee and a beneficiary, but they would have, but that's, that's what's called a me trust. That's where that trust is almost always set aside. Mm. But the settler can certainly be a trustee with others, uh, and the beneficiaries are normally what's called discretionary beneficiaries. So you have a, more like a, a description of the class of beneficiaries. So it might be the children of husband and wife, or it might be their grandchildren, it might be a charity, it might be a whole list of, of people that have the right to benefit, but don't have a fixed interest in the assets. So normally what, what happens almost in every trust in the world is that the trustee is given quite broad powers about the operation of the trust and who they can benefit and who they can not benefit. Uh, it's at their discretion uh, as trustee to make that decision. It is ways and means that the settlor can help influence and we'll come onto that later on. But the trustees are given the entire authority and responsibility of owning those assets because the assets are registered in the in the name of the trustee, and they have to operate and manage that uh, trust. And then the beneficiaries will ultimately receive the benefit of those assets, uh, when it, either from income streams or by divestment of the asset to the beneficiaries, whenever they would like to. Now, now trusts are used for many many reasons. There's a lot of charitable trusts around in the world for tax exemptions. Um, but trusts are generally used as a method of estate planning, uh, gift duty planning, and uh, protection of assets from other uh, risks. It's almost like insurance. Okay. So that's the simple operation of a trust. New Zealand has far too many trusts, in my opinion. Uh, we have more than a million, reportedly more than one million domestic trusts in New Zealand for a population of 5.5 million people. Now, I think that number is slightly overstated, but even if you said it was overstated by 20%, that means that there is one New Zealand trust for every seven people in New Zealand. I don't believe we need quite that many trusts. However, I have three. Uh, I have one for my business. Uh, I have one for my family home and personal assets. Now I have one for my personal investments. So, you know, I use the, the trust regime works very well in New Zealand and I, and I use it to its full. Okay, so so that's great. That's a great introduction. Thanks for that. It's pretty comprehensive and as, as well as a great segue into New Zealand. So that that is quite uh, a high number of trusts. So I have two questions kind of coming out from that. So first of all, are all of those domestic trusts, or are you adding up domestic plus the, the, the foreign trusts? And then secondly, tied into that, what makes the New Zealand trust unique from other jurisdictions, if at all? So, so the 800,000 or so trusts that I was referring to are all domestic trusts. There's another 150,000 foreign trusts on New Zealand register. 
Um, why are trusts so popular here? Look, we were um, an English, we're still a member of the Commonwealth. So until recently, you, the highest court in New Zealand was the Privy Council in London. So all the laws that you'd expect to apply, all the rules and, and traditions around trusts are the old English tradition. So everything you expect to apply in England applies in New Zealand. Um, we had a lot of farming estates in New Zealand. So that was where the trust really got uh, going between how you pass land from generation to generation in large farming blocks. That was the start of the trust back at the end of the 1800s uh, when land was, uh, after the Maori Wars, land was uh, passed off to the uh, English um, descendants that arrived in New Zealand and how you pass that down from generation to generation. That was really the start of the trust the end of the 1800s. Trust just became a common mechanism in New Zealand over the years. They were relatively cheap to put in place, costing three or three and a half thousand dollars on average for a good, decent trust deed. And given that, you know, if it's used as like an insurance policy to, to keep risk in buckets, there's no difference to paying an insurance policy, but this has other benefits in terms of estate planning and gift duty. Now, Trusts became very popular in the 1970s and the 1980s because we had quite high levels of estate duty and gift duty. We've abolished those. They, they, they went in the 1990s. And I don't think we'll ever see estate duty or gift duty back on the New Zealand plate. Uh, in fact, we don't even have a capital gains tax in New Zealand. So our tax system is very uh, efficient. We just have income tax and GST. Um, which is why I do international tax, because there's not much you can do with just income tax and GST, because there's, not, there's only so much planning you can do. The, um, but the trust were very, very popular as a consequence of the estate duty and gift duty rules. And then since then, um, people have just kept them going. Uh, once assets are in trust, you can pass that through generation to generation. With a new law, there's no 80 year period, so you can have them uh, for as long as you want. You can roll them over, you can amend them, you can change their jurisdiction. They're extremely flexible, uh, particularly in New Zealand as they're, they're, they're drafted in order to be extremely flexible for changing circumstances. Um, certainly, as I say, I've got three. I use them to keep the risk of each operation separate to the other. Uh, and if something goes wrong in, in one of the trusts, then I don't put at risk the assets that are held by the other entities so long as the administration and governance is done correctly. Now, touch wood, nothing ever, has ever gone wrong, but you don't know what might happen in the changing circumstances. And even if you've done prudent business, you know, some, sometimes things just go wrong uh, and you don't want to be putting your family home at risk, for example, if something in your business turns to custom. So, um, now, why so foreign trust? Let's talk about foreign trust because those are now extremely popular in New Zealand. Um, one of the reasons New Zealand is so popular is not tainted with the tax haven um, qualifier. Tax havens are becoming extremely difficult to work with. They have new restrictions in terms of which uh, countries will accept money transfers in and out of those tax havens. There's substantial business operation tests such as Cyprus, Isle of Man, uh, Netherlands, Antilles, Caymans, uh, even the Panama Free Zone is now putting in place 
substantial business test in order to access the zero tax rate. The New Zealand tax trust system is entirely different in that John Key, who was the Prime Minister of New Zealand for a long period of time, who was ex-chair of one of the venture capital funds in New York, knew some people to talk to at the OECD. And he asked the OECD, what would it take for us to have a foreign trust regime in New Zealand at a zero tax rate that you would approve? So then, in fact, the OECD officials came down to New Zealand and advised the New Zealand government on what had to be in the legislation to have the OECD tick of approval for our zero tax rate foreign trusts. And it was all about disclosure. So underlying beneficial ownership effectively. And we passed the law in accordance with the OECD requirements. So New Zealand is now the only, the single only OECD approved foreign trust regime that has a zero tax rate. There's nowhere else in the world you can have that tick of approval. New Zealand is also a modern, stable democracy. Uh, nothing's happened here in terms of political upheaval since we had the vote in 1886. Uh, we have a very modern banking system. And because we have so many domestic trusts, everyone is used to the operation of a trust. Everyone knows how the trusts work. The banks know how the trusts will work. The banks uh, are okay with foreign trusts. So New Zealand is very popular because it's OECD approved, a modern democracy, stable, banking system works very efficiently, and it's zero. The tax rate on foreign income of a New Zealand foreign trust is zero. So that's really why the foreign trusts, I think, have become so popular here uh, in terms of, you know, and the, and the rate of growth. Uh, even myself, we would do a couple a week. Wow. That is that is that is pretty aggressive growth. Uh, and especially when, as you mentioned, certain other offshore jurisdictions have been hit reputationally by certain leaks and, and, and whatever. Uh, I can see that New Zealand is a, a lot more attractive in terms of a jurisdiction. Now, you mentioned uh, the UBO, you, you, uh, Ultimate Beneficial Owner. I know in some of the jurisdictions, there's talk or there's progress towards some sort of registrar, register, public register. Is there an equivalent in New Zealand? Is there a public register of UBOs? Not, not a public register, um, okay. but, but when you complete and register the foreign trust with the New Zealand Inland Revenue Department, you have to include um, the name of the settlor and the name of any beneficiary, but only if they've received an entitlement from the trust. Mm. So until a beneficiary has actually received something, their name is not even disclosed, but the set law is disclosed at the beginning. Mm. And the accountant or lawyer who's establishing the trust has to do anti-money laundering and counter-financing and terrorism uh, checks. So effectively we have to do a, a KYC to confirm the client is who they say they are, and the funds are not from uh, bribes, arms, drugs, or people smuggling. Um, often, we get referred clients from other chartered accountants or legal firms, and they've done that check already, obviously, before they took them on as clients. So we can rely on their check if they're a, a, a 
attorney or, or a chartered accountant in a foreign foreign land. But if but if they come to us directly, we will we will do the normal KYC, know your client, uh, checks, and just confirm the source of the funds. Um, we also don't want to be as a firm connected reputationally with a with a trust that's been used for drugs, armaments, people smuggling, or bribes. Uh, it's just not in our good business nature to do that. Um, but we've never had any problem, and uh, we continue to operate a, a very large number of them. Okay, and in the in the offshore world in general, there's been a lot of discussion around economic substance. Is, does that play a role in in trust structures as well, or just come no, so, so in New Zealand, I'm aware of the, um, the substantial business test. Um, I've had clients who've moved from Cyprus to New Zealand as a consequence of this substantial business test, where they simply can't get the uh, registration to zero tax rate anymore. New Zealand does not have substantial business tests in respect of trusts. So, uh, so the, often the trustee will, will provide for an, an initial settlement of $10 or $100. And if you want, that can be the extent of the, uh, of the New Zealand assets in the trust. You don't have to have anything more than the initial settlement. And often that's not paid up uh, until the business gets underway. So there's no substantial business test at all. You can have as little or as much as you want in the, in the, in the, in the trust, and it's fine. Mm. Okay, that, that, that's obviously quite attractive. Uh, now I understand just from doing some reading. In oh, yeah, sorry, just to turn back on that there, yeah. you don't have to have an office. You don't have to have mm -hmm. a registered address. You don't have to have anything. You can just have mm -hmm. the trustee itself. There's no substantial business operations requirements whatsoever, just, just to be clear about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, understood. Thanks for clarifying that. Now, uh, in doing research for, for this conversation, I saw that there's been some legislative changes recently in New Zealand. There's a, some sort of new trustee act. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? How has that changed things in, in, a, in any way? You know, has it, how, how has it meaningfully impacted, especially the international trust space as opposed to the domestic trust space? So, the, so the, the Trust Act 2019 is the first piece of trust legislation in 60 years. So the old trust legislation was a bit out of date. Um, so the uh, impact of the 2019 legislation was to change some of the rules uh, and some of the governance and some of the operations. So the new act requires, well, the first, the first big advantage, under the old act, you had to have a trust that could only last 80 years. That's gone. You can have a trust now for as long as you like. There's no limit on the number of years that you can have a trust in place. It's open-ended. Um, and that's quite helpful because there's a number of farming trusts that are up to their third generation and they're sort of saying, should I have to um, get rid of this trust? Or I have to divest all the assets because my term is up. Well, that's gone. So that's all, that's quite helpful. There are new rules in terms of governance. So the, and I think this is a good thing because trusts are only as good as the record keeping that, that occurs and the governance that is recorded in the trustee. Trusts have been set aside where simply nothing happened. The trustees didn't meet, they didn't discuss anything, they didn't do anything. It just operated as if it was them still who set up the trust without any actual record keeping, governance and maintenance. That's just been reinforced in the legislation. 
you need to have good, very good record keeping. Trustees need to meet at least regularly, so twice a year rather than never. Um, and they have to maintain good financial records. Nothing wrong with that, that, that that's actually helpful because trusts need to have those things in any of them. Um, there are disclosure requirements and the disclosure requirements require you to provide the financial balance sheet of the trust to the beneficiaries. That has caused some concern, of course. Now you can obtain a waiver of that from the beneficiaries. So the beneficiaries, and generally, uh, families have obtained waivers from their children because they often don't want to show that their children that there's all this money sitting in this trust that they're a beneficiary of. And they might not decide to work because they know that they're going to receive millions of dollars on the death of their mother or their father. Um, so you don't, you do have to disclose if you don't want, uh, if you don't get a waiver from the beneficiaries. Now, a number of trusts don't want to do that. Uh, maybe they don't want to show the charity what's in the in the trust because they're going to get all these requests and bits and pieces until they're ready to actually make those sorts of decisions. You can effectively contract for foreign trusts. You can contract out of that trust act. You can do that by simply changing the jurisdiction in the trustee that applies to that trust. So we've had a number of well, not a number, but one three or four weeks ago chose Singapore and one chose South Africa as the jurisdiction that applied to the New Zealand Foreign Trust. It's still a New Zealand Foreign Trust, it's still registered here as a New Zealand Foreign Trust, but the jurisdiction that applies to the operation of the law of that trust is either Singapore or South Africa, and therefore the Trust Act of New Zealand does not apply at all to that foreign trust. And I think that's what you're going to see more and more. People simply saying don't really want to have to disclose to the beneficiaries all of the funds that are sitting in this trust every year. I don't really want the, the hassle of explaining why I need a waiver from that. I'll just change the jurisdiction and the trust deed for the New Zealand Foreign Trust. Um, if you've got a New Zealand domestic trust, then you're stuck with the New Zealand Trust Act. You can't jurisdiction out for a domestic trust. That's where you've got a New Zealand resident set law. But there are means and ways of getting around that outside the gambit of this discussion if you really want to get into that sort of detail in terms of how you might be able to achieve that for your domestic trust it's best to get in contact with me directly and i'll take you through those steps there's a bit of work to get there but if you really want to not have the beneficiaries uh, entitled to that disclosure and you don't want to go and get waivers because that you might be getting that question like why do i have to sign a waiver and what's in the trustee um, then come see me or talk to me and I'll take you through how we might be able to do that for you. Um, but I don't think that's really a subject for discussion here, Darren. Okay, that, that is quite interesting, the idea that the New Zealand Trust could be governed by the trust, trust legislation in another jurisdiction. Aside from the mandatory disclosure rules, is there any other scenario in, in the ordinary course of, 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 of business that, you, that you've seen uh, people op you're exercising that option of you know, using another jurisdiction's laws? What, what, yeah, what well, other rationale do you? Well, I've got a couple with Portuguese accessible. Yeah. Um, mm. Those are typically with South African settles. Um, the, the other issue with the New Zealand Trust Act is the requirement for the trustee to have an investment plan and a divestment of assets amongst different asset classes. 
as you would do with a prudent investment plan. But obviously, that's not what the foreign trust often wants to do. Often in New Zealand, foreign trust is used to own shares in a foreign company. The company makes the profit. The dividends come into the New Zealand foreign trust, and that and that is obviously tax-free on the seat. Sits in the in the trust here, and there's a capital distribution in the following year back to them, and it's not taxable in their country on a capital distribution. And it wasn't taxable in New Zealand, so in fact, that whole dividend flow is entirely tax-free, and that's entirely legitimate. There's no aggressive tax planning there. That's just standard, normal tax planning. Um, but the divestment uh, of assets in the in the trust act, uh, you can put in place a clause in your trustee to prevent that from occurring. Now, obviously, in one of my trusts, I own the family home. Clearly, that's not a divestment of assets amongst various asset classes. That is a single asset um, uh, trust. So I simply put in place a, a clause that allowed for that to occur. So if you've got a New Zealand domestic trust and you're in New Zealand and you haven't yet done that, it is imperative that you go down to your trust lawyer and get that change made. Otherwise, the ID can set that trust aside if it does not comply. A non-complying trust is taxed at 45%. You don't want that. Uh, it's deliberately there as a punitive measure. So just go and get the clause inserted. Um, but the Trust Act 2019 only came into effect in March 2020. We're only just into the new uh, rules about how it actually works in practice. So there are a number of trusts that haven't yet been updated. Go down to your trust lawyer. Doesn't cost very much. Get the clause inserted in your file. Doesn't apply to the foreign trust because we're just simply going to change the jurisdiction. Okay, understood. Now, you know, it, it, what you just said uh, somehow triggered in my mind thoughts about information exchange uh, because you mentioned Portugal, you mentioned South Africa. How does the New Zealand Trust work with regards to like CRS, the Common Reporting Standard, and FACTA, the Financial Account Tax Compliance Act? Yeah. Um, obviously, FACTA applies to New Zealand, it applies everywhere in the world. So if you've got US set laws or US beneficiaries, the FACTA rule would apply. Um, banks don't like it when we have FACTA because banks have to do a whole lot more compliance. Uh, luckily, I have a reasonable relationship with the largest bank in New Zealand. So I say, uh, I go down there every week almost, here's another trust, uh, need a bank account. This one is the FACTA. Here's the forms, um, and, and they, will, they will generally do it. Uh, they don't like it, but they will do it. They won't do it if you're going to do one transaction a year. They'll do it if you're going to do a few transactions. And they, you know, see some basis for opening the account. But, but sure, factor applies. Um, even the tax havens now have inter, inf, um, tax information sharing agreements. Caymans has it. Panama just has had it. Uh, Ida Man, Malta, all have information sharing agreements. So there's no place in the world now where you can have a, a, a trust, an operation that is not subject to the international tax information sharing agreements. Uh, they are worldwide. I think there's a, a couple of countries in Africa which don't yet comply. Uh, North Korea, which you wouldn't want to set up a business in, uh, doesn't comply. And I don't, also, I don't think Russia complies. I don't think you want to set up in Russia at the moment, just in case someone drops a nuclear bomb on them. Um, so, yeah, we are subject to information sharing agreements, but let's be clear about those. 
The only information the ID has at the beginning is the name of the settlor and the residence of the settlor. Until a beneficiary has received anything, they don't even get on the register. There's nothing to share, but there's nothing there to share with. Um, and it's not, you don't have to have, the settlor can be anyone. It doesn't have to be the person that will be the beneficiary. So people are often using parents or sisters or friends as the settlor, and they might be the beneficiary, but they don't show up anywhere until they receive something out of the trust. So there's nothing to share, just, just the name of the friend. Um, and then the New Zealand government will comply with requests, but they won't, but there's no, no register to share. Oh, okay, there's no public register. So if a government sends a request to say, we believe X has received a beneficial receipt from, from XYZ Trust, and the ID will share that information at that point in time. But until they've received that, until they get a request, um, that won't occur. Uh, in the last 30 years, I've seen a request once from South Korea, uh, and we complied uh, as, as we're required to do. But look, we act for a good number of trusts and one in 30 years. I, I, I don't think it, the, the, the rules are there to catch the people that are deliberately doing the wrong thing. If you comply, and because New Zealand got the OECD tick of approval, I don't think you're going to see much issue out of the um, information sharing agreements. Um, and the common reporting standards requirements. Okay, and understood, understood. Now you mentioned some uh, sensitive jurisdictions. So for those who are watching uh, this after it's been recorded, so this has been recorded on March the 10th. So right now there is some discussion around people who let's say maybe exposed to Russia, like Russian passport holders, certain Russian nationals. Are there certain jurisdictions that are not, encouraged or perhaps not able to access a, a New Zealand trust structure? No, so there's no, there's no prohibition list. Um, if you are a registered oligarch of Russia, um, so if you, and we have a couple of those with investment in New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand Parliament passed last night under urgency, the ability to seize the assets, but only of oligarchs, there's a list of oligarchs, so if you are sitting on $6 billion of Russian assets, you might well be considered to be an oligarch. Uh, there's a person in New Zealand that has a very large uh, estate uh, for at $7,000 a night accommodation. Uh, I think he's gonna find that that estate has been seized as a consequence of the government rule last night. Um, but we have a number of Russian uh, individuals who are not oligarchs who have established foreign trust in New Zealand don't have any problem with those. There's no list. Um, I haven't had a request out of North Korea. I'm not expecting one. Um, but but technically, there's nothing stopping us so long as we can prove the source of the funds and who they are, and that's simply a certified passport and proof of it of address, or it comes from another chartered accountant that's done that for us previously. There's no list of prohibited nations. Okay, that's that's good to know. Now, what about so I'm going back to the 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 point about FATCA. So if someone is US exposed, if there are beneficiaries that are US exposed, uh, I know from uh, as a trustee, there are no issues, but if the the structure requires a New Zealand bank account, the banks uh are they open to it or are they a bit nervous about 
US exposed yeah. persons. Now, now, the banks are open to it. But, I mean, yeah. they can't prohibit acting for uh, mm. what is still the largest economy in the world. Uh, yeah. So you can't isolate yourself mm. um, from that. So the banks are familiar with their processes in place where you have to go through a few more hoops when you mm. open the bank account. But, mm. uh, in New Zealand, foreign trust doesn't have to have a bank account. Uh, it doesn't have to have a New Zealand bank account. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a number with bank accounts that are not in New Zealand. Uh, and in fact, we're just opening one in Portugal at the moment. Uh, for, uh, and one of the reasons I'm going up to Madeira shortly is to complete that process because I'm obviously the trustee uh, with the Portuguese national. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want a bank account and you've got, and so long, you know, the only issue for the US settlers is the US grant or trust regime. And, and I, I send them to you, Darren, for advice about that because I know mm -hmm. enough to be dangerous. I know you know how to work that and the grant or trust regime better than I do. So I send my clients off to you to get advice about the US grant or trust regime. But subject to them getting through the US grant or trust regime, um, the banks will open accounts under FATCA and will deal with FATCA. You just have to, you might have to pay a slightly bigger fee on, on the transaction for their processing time. But yeah, they will open. Yep, they will do it. Okay, that's, that's good to know because as everyone's aware, uh, if you are US exposed, sometimes banking can be challenging. Okay, so another another point I, I wanted to explore. Could you talk about the letter of wishes that are uh, that can be attached to a trust? I'm quite fond of these. I, I believe these are very helpful and very useful. So a letter of wishes, and sometimes it's called a memorandum of wishes, is the same thing. Mm -hmm. It is not binding, but it's highly persuasive on the trustees. Is effectively mm -hmm. a set of wishes from the settlers to the mm -hmm. trustees in terms of what they intended, what they wanted to have happen with respect to the assets that the trustees are now governed with managing um, on behalf of the beneficiaries. Because mm -hmm. that's not binding, but it's highly persuasive. In fact, I've never seen a trustee not take into account the wishes of the settlor when it's set out in writing under a memorandum of wishes or letter of wishes. It's quite helpful. The trustees mm -hmm. need to know what the settler had in mind when they established the trust in order to operate it in the way that the settler intended them to operate it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the trustees have entire independence on the settler and they can do uh, almost what they want with it, but it would be highly unusual for them not to take into account the desires of the settlers when they establish the trust. It might be for the education of their grandchildren. It could be for, I've got one trust that owns a huge number of very ancient violins. He wants to establish a museum. You know, mm. it's helpful for the trustees to know what is the purpose of the foreign trust so they can actually make sure it happens in the way that they wanted it to. A letter of wishes or a memorandum of wishes can be live. You can update them regularly. You can change them as you want. The trustees are kept informed along the way. Mm -hmm. You know, God forbid that if, if, you, if the settlers get hit by a bus tomorrow, then the trustees are left without anyone to come back and talk to. And so a letter of wishes is quite helpful for them to say, okay, this is what was in the mind of the people that set up the trust when they set it up. And I've got that instruction from them. I will take that into account when I operate the trust going forward. I think it's a very helpful thing to have. Okay, wonderful. As, as you mentioned that one of the first clients that I had with, uh, with trust issues from a tax perspective in Singapore, the trust was actually created for violin. 
So it's just <laughs> coincidental that you that you mention it. Um, I'm from Japan, so and he's got a huge collection of ancient violins. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, another question: What exactly is an advisory trustee in yeah. the New Zealand context? So advisory trustees or custodian trustees are almost in every trustee, um, but aren't very often used to be fair. So the concept of an advisory trustee, mm. <clears throat> excuse me, is where the trustees are undertaking a project normally, and they don't have the expertise amongst themselves in that specific area. Mm. They have the right to appoint an advisory trustee to advise them on that matter. And then the trustees are entitled to rely upon the advice of the advisory trustee, and they are relieved from any personal liability as a consequence. They don't have to follow the advice of the advisory trustee, but they're entitled to rely on the advice of the advisory trustee, and they are relieved from any um, liability that arises because they've relied on that advisory trustee. Now, I've only seen it used twice. Um, to give you an example of where I would, I think an advisory trustee is valid. This was a trust that owned a, a reasonable piece of land right on the town boundary, which they wanted to have added into the town boundary in order to subdivide it uh, into residential sections for the building of houses. So they appointed an advisory trustee that had um, connections and had worked for the council town planning department as an advisory count, um, trustee. And they also appointed a town planning uh, firm as an advisor, but not as an advisory trustee. And together they worked in order to bring that band inside the town boundary and got approval for residential subdivision. So it's a very specific project where they didn't have the expertise amongst themselves, didn't want to have any liability should something go wrong um, and appointed advisory trustee. Now that's the only time I've seen it used in 10 years. Darren. Custodian trustees are a little different. Custodian trustees often get appointed uh, under a testamentary trust. So on the death of a person, you can appoint a custodian trustee and they are charged with investment of the assets of the estate on behalf of the beneficiaries and operation of the trust on behalf of the beneficiaries, as I say, on the death of the settlor. Um, again, not often used in New Zealand uh, we, we do have New Zealand Guardian Trusts, which will act for smaller states, but all the other custodian trusts require quite substantial assets to justify the, their costs and their fees that they charge being a custodian trustee. Custodian trustees are used in New Zealand uh, when a company goes into liquidation and the assets are placed under the custodian trustees mandate until the liquidation is complete. But in a trust concept, um, more often than not, now the trustees are appointed <coughs> from, the, from the estate and they simply appoint an investment firm to manage the investment on their behalf rather than appointing a custodian trustee. The, the, the um, trustee still provides for it. I just don't see it used very often, Darren. Okay. Does it have any... It sounds similar to the idea of a protector in other yeah. jurisdictions. Is it, is it similar or is it completely different? Um, Sort of. I mean, you can have a protector for a New Zealand trust or a New Zealand foreign trust. It's not common, but it, but it certainly uh, isn't entirely outside um, um, the right to have it. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't think a protector takes the liability on board themselves. An advisory trustee would in fact take the liability on board uh, themselves. So it's a little different to a protector. It's not too dissimilar in that the trustees can look to a protector to assist them in the decisions they make. But, but as I say, it's, it's not quite the same. I understand where you're coming from. Okay, and what about a managing trustee? So that's the regular, I've seen the term when I was doing some reading, but that's the regular trustee, right? The managing trustee? Yeah, so let's talk about trustees and who they should be. In New Zealand, we often use a corporate trustee, a company as the trustee. There's a reason for that. Um, If individuals are the trustees, then all the assets of the trust are registered in the names of the individual. And if one dies or one decides they don't want to act anymore or you don't like that person and you want to replace them, we have to go and re-register all of the assets, uh, ownership in the name of the new trustees. So even if you kept two and you've replaced one, you still have to re-register all of the assets again, all over again. Nothing there's fees and costs and time with that process. If you have a company as a trustee, then if it is the directors of that company, are the, are the equivalent of the trustees. They are operating and managing the trust underneath, underneath, but the company is the name of the trustee. And you can change directors without changing the ownership of the assets. Corporate trustee is still the owner. It's just that the people operating that, that company are different. So it's very quick, easy, and cheap to change a trustee to the corporate trustee. Now for a foreign trust, you must have what's called a contact trustee. A contact trustee must be a New Zealand tax resident and should be someone who is an expert in the operation of trusts. It is not your general practitioner. It is not the lawyer down the street. It is not some accountant you use on the corner. It is someone who has expertise in the operation of a trust. Um, I am personally the contact trustee for all of William Buck's foreign trusts. Um, and that's who the, the ID will come in contact if there's an issue or registration or, or something that needs to be complied with. You must have a contact trustee, otherwise you do not have a foreign trust. You have a non-complying trust, and as I said before, you'll be taxed at 45% on income and capital gains. Not what you had intended, I think. Okay, understood. And that contact trustee, does he or she need to be licensed? Is there like an exam and they get a certain sort of credential? No, not licensed. Um, But I have not seen, uh, most people won't take it unless they are an expertise, uh, have expertise in the area, because there is some personal liability that arises on the contact trustee. So you don't take it on for, 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 for as a free will, you take it on because you know you can comply with the requirements and what the requirements will be and regularly do make those disclosures as required. Um, but there's no, no, no registered, there used to be a rule that it had to be a chartered accountant or lawyer. That rule is, is being relaxed a little bit, but I haven't seen anyone take it on that isn't a chartered accountant or, or an attorney with um, expertise in the operation of foreign trust. And I wouldn't recommend anyone use someone that's not a recognized expertise have expertise in that area, will end up costing you a lot more in the long run. Okay. And the corporate trustee, is that is are they licensed trust companies or no? no? no just an ordinary company. We adopt mm-hmm. a specific trustee constitution that goes with that company. We don't have articles or memorandums and you don't wear 
constitutions. Um, mm. So a company has a constitution that's the rules that govern the operation of the company. We actually put in place a specific constitution that provides that, that company is acting in its capacity as a trustee and only as a trustee, so that it's clear. Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't have to have it licensed. You don't have to have it registered unless you're seeking funds from the public or recommending investments to the public, and then you're going to have to have it licensed and go through quite a lot of regulations. Um, mm -hmm. Generally, the foreign trust, as I say, in New Zealand, own shares or assets uh, offshore and aren't mm -hmm. operating in New Zealand. So there's mm -hmm. no need, and they don't seek funds from the public in New yeah. Zealand. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't seen don't think I've ever seen any of those as a foreign trust concept. Okay, understood. And in terms of uh, the fee structure, I know you mentioned at the beginning, it costs like a few thousand New Zealand dollars to set up. What about the annual running costs, any additional costs so people can get a sense for what they're looking at? Yeah, so, so, so typically a, a good foreign trustee will cost you around three to three and a half thousand dollars, New Zealand dollars. Uh, that includes the setup of the corporate trustee and the appointment of the directors and and all the normal setup costs. You will be paying a contact trustee in the order of four to 7,000, depending um, on what's required of them to operate uh, and govern the trust. The more transactions, the more operations are gonna be towards the higher end of that. If it's simply a passive mm -hmm. trust that does a few transactions a year, you might be at the lower end of that range. It really does depend. There are some trustees around uh, New Zealand that charge what I consider to be uh, an unreasonable fees, twelve and a half to thirteen thousand. If you're paying that much, we can say come and talk to us. Um, we can probably halve that. The the ongoing costs, you have the government fee for the um, trust return each year. Mm -hmm. You have to do a set of financial statements each year. So you, um, if you want to have if they've got lots of transactions, we generally recommend they have an accounting software package called Zero. I think it costs $50 a month, so $600 a year. You got the accounting software covered. It's going to cost you a couple of grand a year to do the financial statements, tax returns, um, and filings. And it's going to cost you about $500 a year to do the resolutions, trustee minutes that go with it. It's not, as I say, it's not super expensive to operate in New Zealand. It's a lot cheaper. If you go to Guernsey or Jersey or somewhere like that, where you're going to be paying uh, more like twenty or thirty thousand a year for, for the same sort of thing. Yeah, it's actually cheaper than Singapore as well. Now, uh, how would someone reach you? What's the best way to, to reach you and your team? Um, look, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, but if you don't, if you can't find me on LinkedIn, uh, if you mm -hmm. just look at William Buck, uh, New Zealand Limited, you'll you'll see my name there. Um, Contact Darren, and he has my contact details. Um, I'm on WhatsApp. I'm on anything. I'm on WeChat. So yeah. people can find me if they really want me. Uh, there's not many Aaron Boots in the world. So pretty much if you search Aaron Boot, you'll find me. Uh, it's a pretty unusual surname. There's not too many of us around in the world. A couple, but not many. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, Aaron. Thank you for your time. Thanks for sharing so, so much of your insights into the New Zealand Foreign Trust. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Jim. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on U.S. Expat Taxes and International Entrepreneur Taxes at www.htj.tax. Number two, 
Stream premium educational videos at www.hcj.tax. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult over Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming events are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at htj.tax to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.